It was hot and muggy in Beirut on the 4th of August 2020. I was scrolling through Twitter looking for story ideas when a tweet caught my eye just before 6pm. There was a fire at Beirut port. Great, I thought. As a journalist, this looked like a pretty straightforward news story. The port is right in the heart of Beirut, rimmed by historic neighborhoods and landmark buildings. I live close by. I even recognized the spot where the fire was. I ran through my checklist of what I'd need to cover the story. A camera, spare batteries, and a face mask. It was the pandemic, after all. All of a sudden, I heard this loud boom. I wasn't sure where it had come from, but I figured I might be able to see something from my terrace. So I went to grab my camera, and then this unnatural roar filled my ears, and everything exploded. Every window in my apartment shattered. Shards of glass lodged in my forehead, arms, chest, and in my neck. I threw myself under the dining room table, tearing my knees open on the carpet of broken glass that was now there. Crimson blood seeped onto the yellow patterned floor tiles of my dining room. I waited for I don't know how long, bleeding and stunned, before I realized I needed to get out. Somehow, I made my way out the front door that was, by this point, just uselessly hanging off its hinges. At first, I thought the cafe right next to my house had been targeted in some kind of terrorist attack. There was dust everywhere and the customers were stumbling about. They were battered and bloodied. Gradually, the volume came back on as people's screams and cries mixed in with the wail of car alarms. But as I made my way towards the hospital, it became clear that this wasn't an attack on a small cafe. I could barely see through the grey fog of dust that the blast had kicked up. But as I moved through the street, I came across cars that looked like they'd been crushed with a giant's hammer. Steel shopfront shutters were twisted in on themselves. There was so much shattered glass, and everywhere there were people wandering, stunned. Their clothes were drenched in blood, trying to make sense of what had happened. Breaking news from Lebanon. Massive, deadly explosion, buildings destroyed. The death toll has climbed to more than 100 people. There are around 4,000 others injured, people trapped under rubble. The Prime Minister is pointing to a warehouse. 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate detonated by a burning warehouse full of fireworks. Beirut is in mourning. It was one of the biggest stories to hit Beirut in years. Nearly 3,000 tons of an explosive chemical called ammonium nitrate had been stashed in a port warehouse alongside oil, acids, and fireworks for more than half a decade. The ammonium nitrate detonated, creating an explosion that killed more than 200 people. It injured thousands more, including me, and leveled entire neighborhoods. 300,000 people were left without homes in an instant. I didn't cover the explosion when it happened. 
I spent the first night in hospital and the following weeks in bandages, unable to walk. Like so many others in Beirut, I'm looking for answers. How did this happen? Who knew the explosives were there? And will there ever be justice? With the help of my colleagues at The National, we're diving into just what happened that evening in August. This is The Blast. My name is Finvar Anderson, and over the course of four episodes for Beyond the Headlines, I try to untangle the web of who knew what and when, from an eccentric Russian sea captain to port workers who allege widespread corruption to officials keen to deflect any blame. Hit subscribe in your podcast app now so you don't miss a second. Episode 1. The Russian and the Rosas. Our story starts with a sailor. I love a bit of a rough wind. Not a super storm or anything, but when you get gusts up to four, six, seven, eight, for me that's nothing. I like it. I'll go out and stand on the deck and take it in. I just really like steering a ship. If I could, I'd do it until the day I die. To me, it's not work, it's life. This is Boris Prokoshev, the captain of the ship that first brought the ammonium nitrate into Beirut port. Erin Brown, the Nationals' Tunis correspondent, who happens to speak Russian, tracked down our captain in the Russian Black Sea port of Sochi. She picks up the story from here. Growing up in Novokuznetsk, smack dab in the middle of Siberia, 2,000 kilometers from the nearest sea, all Boris Prokoshev ever wanted to do was sail. This profession landed in my lap when I was still in the fourth grade. I was 12 years old. We had a textbook, the mother tongue, and on its cover was the drawing of a passenger ship, Ukraine. When I saw the drawing, I loved it. I told myself, if I can copy that drawing exactly as it is, I'll become a sailor. Maris wasn't much of a student, but eventually he found his way into one of the maritime academies in the Soviet Far East and managed to finish his schooling while doing his two years of compulsory Navy service. Right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed, he headed for the commercial port in Odessa on the Black Sea. For the next 20 years, he worked on cargo ships, traveling the world as he moved up the ranks before finally becoming a captain. In 2013, Boris got a contract from a Russian businessman living in Cyprus who'd leased a ship and needed a skipper. The man's name was Igor Kreshushkin. Boris had never worked for Kreshushkin before, but he'd sailed the same ship earlier that year, a rather rundown clunker of a cargo ship called the Rosas. Kreshushkin was offering a particularly lucrative contract since the ship's cargo was dangerous, a consignment of 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that needed to be shipped from Batumi, Georgia, to Mozambique. Before we go any further here, let me tell you just a little bit about ammonium nitrate. It's a cheap synthetic compound that is used as a fertilizer to add nitrogen to the soil for all sorts of crops. But it is also highly combustible and can be used to create explosives for mining. So shipping it requires special care and attention, which means extra money. 
the ammonium nitrate was ordered by a company called Fabrica de Explosivos de Mozambique. It's not uncommon for a ship to be owned by one person or company and leased out to different shippers to fulfill contracts. Baris wasn't sure just who owned the Rosas, but he knew Krychushkin took over the ship right after Baris's first contract. And whether he owned the ship or not, Krychushkin was the man in charge and was responsible for the vessel, its cargo, and its crew. And when Baris went to meet the Rosas and the same crew he'd left in the hands of another captain after his first contract, Right away, he knew something was off. Usually, sailors will work two or three contracts back-to-back, but not a single one of his crew members were staying on for the trip to Mozambique. Now, Buddy knew the ship wasn't in top condition. In the summer of 2013, the Rosas had been impounded in Seville, Spain, for failing a port inspection. But apparently, enough repairs had been done to get her back out on the water, loaded up in Batumi, and on to Turkey, where Buddy met the ship in September. But something was amiss. When I showed up for the second contract, something made me suspicious. Why was the whole crew changing? I was told, they don't want to go to Mozambique. It's too far. That didn't add up for Baris. A long contract with Hazard Pay should have been an incentive. He confronted the other captain. I asked him, how did the work go? Did everyone get paid? And he said to me, everything was fine. Of course they got paid, no questions asked. But something wasn't right. I'd left him with a fine ship and suddenly the whole crew leaves. Once Paris got on the ship with his new crew, he discovered in the logs that, in fact, nothing was fine. The crew from the last contract hadn't been paid. There had been a mutiny. They'd contacted the ITF, the International Transit Workers Federation, and gone on strike. Baris was livid. He told me that if he had known that, he wouldn't have taken the contract. But the ship was loaded, and he had no other jobs lined up, so he decided to stay. Okay, so Baris is working for Grechushkin on the Rosas, taking the ammonium nitrate to Mozambique. So how does it end up in Beirut? Well... This is where things get strange. First, they had to fuel up. Normally, they'd do this in Turkey before leaving the Black Sea, but for some reason, Grachushkin told Baris they needed to sail to Piraeus, the port in Athens, for fuel and supplies. So we're in Piraeus, fueling up. I've ordered supplies and everything. Then a barge comes up to the ship, and I see that the ship's boss, that Grichushkin guy, is on the barge. And the stuff he ordered, or that I ordered and he signed for, they're offloading half of it. I was surprised. So wait, but he says they're offloading supplies. Does he know why? No, he had no idea what the problem was, but he soon found out. They sat at the port in Piraeus for days, waiting for word about the route they'd take to get to Mozambique. So let's explain this for a second. There are two ways they can get there. The long way, which would mean traveling across the Mediterranean, passing through the Straits of Gibraltar, sailing down the west coast of Africa, then rounding the Cape of Good Hope, or the short way, through the Suez Canal, which would allow them to pass from the eastern Mediterranean straight into the Red Sea, and then the Indian Ocean. The Suez Canal can shave weeks off a journey, but it's expensive. In addition to paying for the transit itself, 
most ships pay for added security to ward off pirates. Right, and after a few days of waiting around, Boris asked Rashushkin what the holdup was, and whether they were taking the Suez route or the long way around. Then he says to me, he says, I'm still looking for some extra cargo to take aboard, because if we want to go to the Suez route, I don't have the money for it. That didn't add up. We're carrying this expensive cargo. In general, it costs a lot to ship dangerous goods. There should be a good money in that. But he's broke? Not even a month has gone by, and he's already run out of funds. Why? Of course he wasn't going to explain any of that to me. A few days later, Grichushkin told Boris to make another stop. He'd found additional cargo in Beirut that they could take on to pay for the passage through the canal. Boris is a pretty practical guy, and at this point, he just wanted to get the journey underway. So he agreed to the detour. He sent an email to the port in Beirut with all the necessary landing information and pointed the ship east from Greece. The port of Beirut is big. Nearly 60% of all of Lebanon's imports were coming through these waters. But it's also a microcosm for Lebanon's dysfunction. It's choked with bureaucracy and riddled with corruption and nepotism. The Rosas was just one of dozens of ships moving in and out on a given day, in a labyrinth of containers and cranes, longshoremen and shipping agents. The Rosas was brought in past the breakwater, met by her agent and set up to load this new batch of cargo. Erin, what was this extra cargo Grachushkin had drummed up? You know, Boris didn't know until they got there. He knew it was some kind of large equipment, and he knew the total weight of what they were loading on. But it wasn't until they were in the port that he saw the cargo itself, an assortment of heavy machinery for road work. No one had given me any kind of documentation about how much each piece weighed. Okay, so they started loading the first piece onto the lid of the hatch. And it starts buckling under the weight. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. If the crane had lowered that thing all the way on, it would have dropped through the lid and the whole thing would have gone up. A blow like that to ammonium nitrate would have caused an explosion. Boris wasn't about to let them load the road equipment onto the ship, but he says Grachushkin got him on the phone and tried to force him. I was telling him, we can take the cargo. And he says to me, you've got to take it, load the ship. So I say, how am I supposed to load it if it's going to break the lid of the hatch? For a week, we went back and forth. Finally, I said to him, you know what? Come yourself and do it. I'm just an idiot captain. What do I know? Come load it yourself. If the hold breaks, it'll be your responsibility No mine. Well, that shot him up fast. The port issued the ship a fine for not taking the cargo, but Boris had bigger problems on his hands. He said the crew was starting to get nervous that Grachushkin wouldn't pay them and were refusing to go to Mozambique. Grachushkin told him to come to Cyprus so they could sort it out in person. I asked the guys if they'd go to Cyprus, and they agreed. So we pulled up anchor and got ready to leave. But the Rosas wasn't going anywhere. The ship was under arrest. 
Turns out, for the last two years, he hadn't been paying for fuel. That's why we went to Piraeus instead of fueling up in Turkey. He found a supplier there who didn't know him. We've had a look at some court documents that show fuel suppliers who were owed more than $100,000 by Kertushkin filed a complaint against him and asked for the ship to be impounded in Beirut as well. As soon as the ship was arrested and people started asking for money, Kretushkin disappeared. So we did actually try to reach out to Kretushkin to ask him about this. We managed to get through, but let's just say uh, he didn't want to talk. They told me as soon as he paid the money, we'd be off to the four corners. You know, Erin, there were a lot of reports that the Rosas had been impounded because of its condition. We've both seen the documents that said the Rosas had been pulled up in Spain just a few months earlier. But we found no official record saying the ship was inspected at Beirut port. Did you ask Beris about this? You know, I did because I had seen similar reports. But Beris was adamant that that wasn't the case. They said that the port commission in Beirut found a technical malfunction with a ship and impounded it. They couldn't have cared less about the condition of the ship. Not a single person inspected the vessel while we were there. Not a single one. If the ship had been impounded because it failed a technical inspection, it would be recorded with the International Maritime Organization. There was nothing for the Rosas in Beirut around that period in autumn 2013. But what about Beris and the crew? Were they under arrest? Most of the crew actually went home, but Baris and three others were forced by the port to stay on and look after the ship. And the cargo. Big ships like this need constant tending, and the Rosas had a crack in its hull that let water into the ship. The crew had to pump water out of the bilge every single day so that the Rosas didn't sink. Plus, with cargo like ammonium nitrate, you have to keep an eye on the generators and electrical systems to make sure nothing could accidentally ignite it. Even if they weren't under arrest, they were still stuck on their ship, effectively prisoners on a floating bomb. Just a quick note here. It's actually fairly common in the maritime industry when a ship is impounded or there's a legal issue that crew members often have to stay behind to look after it. There are cases where crew members wait years for a resolution to legal disputes or bankruptcy hearings to see the ship taken on or new crews arrive to take over. This can often be years without pay and without even regular supplies of food and water. And now we have the Rosas in this situation for more than a month, just sitting there in Beirut port full of explosive cargo and the people in charge had disappeared. Erin, did the port authorities intervene? Did they check in to make sure the cargo was safe? You know, that's the weird thing, Finn. Buddy says that at first, the authorities were really agitated about the cargo. He told them if it was causing problems, they should just offload it, since neither Gratushkin nor the cargo owner was showing up to solve the problem. But he said they refused. Now, when I say the cargo owner, it's not that straightforward. The ammonium nitrate was produced in Georgia by Rustaviazot, this company that's long since dissolved. And it was en route to the explosives company in Mozambique. Then you reached out to them. What did they have to say? 
We reached out to FEM, the company who was supposed to receive the cargo. They said they hadn't yet paid for it, so when it didn't show up, they just ordered a replacement shipment. So they ordered the cargo through a company called Savaro Limited. We reached out to Savaro's director by email, but we still haven't heard anything back from her. As the weeks wore on with no sign of Grishushkin, things started to go sideways for the leftover crew. They were running low on food and water and had started selling diesel and fuel oil on the sly to smaller boats in the port in order to buy supplies. Occasionally, a kind soul would drop off a meal or cigarettes or help them buy some internet for their phones. Baris was fed up. He wasn't being paid, and he wasn't to blame for the debts. He just wanted to go home. We started a hunger strike. We made signs, went ashore at the port and marched around saying, we're on hunger strike until you let us go home. Right. I have seen pictures of them with their posters. Yeah, but the hunger strike didn't go as well as they had planned. We were getting ready to go into the port, and none of the dinghies would take us in. Turns out, the portmaster told them not to bring us ashore. Let them starve on the boat, they said. That way, no one will see or hear how they're starving. That's how they solved the problem. The weeks turned into months. Boris was growing more desperate to get home and see his wife. I wrote to Putin. I wrote him every month, sent him an email saying, you have to get us out of here. We're worse off than prisoners. At least they know how long their sentence will be. We have no idea when they'll let us out or how long we'll be stuck here. Every month, I got the same answer. Your message has been forwarded to the foreign ministry. Trying to pinpoint who was actually overseeing the case of the Rosas from the port has been one of the most challenging parts of putting this whole podcast together. All this time, dozens of different authorities, the harbour master, customs agents, the port authority, they knew that the Rosas was filled with dangerous cargo and that no one had come to claim it. But who on that list should have made a call on what happened to the ship and its four sailors. The port itself is a kind of tangled web of jurisdictions. It's not a private company and it's not a state-owned enterprise. Instead, it's run by this provisional board that has been in place since the 1990s. Roles and responsibilities are loosely defined at best. Talking to people who work there, they paint a picture of a place where different bodies are happy to keep it that way. One official at the port that we pressed for answers on all of this just said, that wasn't my area of responsibility. So where does all this leave our captain? Well, after nearly 10 months, some contacts put Baris in touch with a lawyer. Using the money from the fuel he sold, he was able to pay him and within days they were out. Baris says he padlocked the hatches of the Rosas and handed the keys to the harbour master as he and the other three headed for the airport and home to Russia and Ukraine. The Rosas was Beirut's problem now. Baris didn't hear anything about the ship, its cargo or his unpaid wages until almost a year later. Baris claimed nearly $60,000 
which his lawyer was trying to get back for him. About a year later, I emailed him asking about the back pay. And he wrote me saying, the Rosus sank. They offloaded the cargo to the port. And I was shocked. I thought, for crying out loud, when we were there, we could have unloaded it together the right way. We would have helped do all of that. But they did it themselves. Of course they had to. If there was no one on the ship, then it turns out they unloaded it fine, but then stored it. Well, you have to store it correctly. There are regulations. And they obviously didn't. A few weeks ago, I spoke to a docker who worked at the port back in 2014. He remembered offloading the Rosas's cargo. We're not using his name to protect his identity. He's worried about the repercussions for his family. But he told me that large bags of ammonium nitrate were taken from the ship and stashed in Warehouse 12, or Hangar 12 as it's sometimes called. You'll hear some of the officials that we speak to refer to it that way. According to documents we've seen from 2007, Warehouse 12 was reserved for hazardous goods. He told me that when the ammonium nitrate was offloaded from the Rosas, it was already damaged. The cargo, which had originally been shipped in powder form, was now partly soaked through, turning some of it into rock-hard lumps. The docker said that the shipment was so large that it took a day and a half to fully offload and that it filled up much of Warehouse 12 once it had been moved. Even though there are clear international standards for how ammonium nitrate should be stored, leaked images from inside the warehouse show bags of ammonium nitrate thrown haphazardly on top of each other. Some of the bags are clearly damaged. But ammonium nitrate wasn't the only thing in Warehouse 12. Forensic investigations later revealed that there were massive jugs of oil and acid, several tons of fireworks, tires and, you can't make this up, five miles of fuse on wooden spools stored next to the ammonium nitrate. Hardly any of the thousands of workers at the port knew the chemicals were there. But plenty of others did. Intelligence officers, ministers, Judges and even the president knew. This jumble of dangerous chemicals and materials just sat in the old warehouse for nearly six years, until August 4th, 2020, when it detonated and blew Beirut apart. That's on episode two of The Blast by Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe now to hear it as soon as it comes out. Episode 1 of The Blast was co-written and hosted by Erin Brown and me, Fimbar Anderson. It was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, with assistance from Seneva Rose. Boris Prokoshev was voiced by Bohdan Bondaruk, and the series is executive produced by James Haynes-Young and Erika Elkoshi. <laughs>